I get the privilege of reading God's word to you this morning. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat his morsel of bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a visitor came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like this. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, And have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So now the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh. Behold. I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight. And give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, The son also that is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan went to his house. Good morning, church family. Judge not so that you will not be judged. We know that one, don't we? Here's the thing. Apart from the people of God, uh, those who know nothing of Christ, those who hate the truth of God, um, the world also knows that one too. And surely if the world knows any scripture at all, It knows John 3.16, 
and it knows Matthew 7.1. God is love. God loves everybody. Uh, so don't judge me. Don't insist that your truth is the only truth. Who are you to judge me? Have you heard this before? We'll not belabor that. I want us to simply notice in context in Matthew 7. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 7, please. I want you to just notice with me as we read these first six verses of Matthew 7 um, that our Savior and King, Jesus, um, in the context of this prohibition against judging others, is immediately <laughs> follows that statement with, with three um, commands that actually require us to judge. To see if you notice it. Verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. I'm just guessing that this is to do with judgment. <laughs> and with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Did you notice it? Did, did you notice the, the command not to judge and yet it's followed by three statements that not only allow for but actually require judgment. To see a speck in my brother's eye, sin in another believer's life, to, and, and to seek to help remove that, is that not a judgment? Don't give what is holy to dogs. Who decides who the dogs are? Is that not a judgment? Don't throw your pearls before swine. Again, surely that is also a judgment. And so how, how do we reconcile this? Well, if you're the kind of person who marks in your Bible... And that's a, that's a good thing, by the way. Um, you could highlight the word judge in verse 1, and then you could highlight the word hypocrite in verse 5. And, and if you're feeling especially artistic, you could draw a line uh, from verse 1 to verse 5, okay? And if you don't mark in your Bible, mark it in somebody else's Bible, <laughs> because this is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied truths in all of the Bible, even by God's people. This do not judge business is to do with hypocritical judging, the critical condemning spirit that so easily finds fault in another while looking right past its own sin. The word judge in this passage, the Greek word krino, uh, gives us the English word critic, and doesn't it seem to you that within every one of us, there is at some level a critic able to spot 
the fault in another. So prone to overlook the fault within self. The critical condemning spirit of the hypocrite is what Jesus, our king, forbids here in Matthew 7. Of course we are meant to make judgments, value judgments in our own lives. Of of course we are meant to make value judgments in the lives of other people. Parenting comes to mind. More, More on that later. There is an appropriate judging in that sense, judging that is required of all of us, as we'll see. But the the condemning attitude toward another, often accompanied by a blindness uh, to our own faults, is forbidden. Just think of the text that was just read to us from 2 Samuel. Um, Nathan the prophet confronting Israel's king David. Nathan appropriately judged David's choice of adultery, uh, his choice to cover that up uh, and eventually murder um, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. That, That was sin that absolutely needed to be confronted. This is the king of God's people. A judgment in that sense had to be made. And think of David's first reaction. Upon hearing the tale of a rich man with many flocks who took a poor man's only lamb to feed a guest rather than use one of his own many lambs. You get outraged just hearing that, don't you? Me too. We're meant to. And David was outraged too, wasn't he? He's so angry at the selfishness and the sinfulness of, of, of that rich man with, with many fl- flocks, and yet he, he somehow is able to look right past his own sin. He himself took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to use her, basically. And yet David's vengeful outrage at hearing uh, Nathan's parable is, is the kind of judgment that Jesus is here uh, in Matthew 7 forbidding. How can you be mad and and demand justice from a lamb-stealing man of means, King David, when you are a wife-stealing, murdering man of means? How How can you do that? Now, in Matthew 7, we we come to... Are you still listening? In Matthew 7, we come to a new... A part of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is uh, presented to us in Matthew's gospel as God's king, the Lord's anointed one. And, and King Jesus is now describing the nature of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the nature of the lifestyle that, that kingdom people are called to. How do, how do saved people function, in other words, Repentant sinners trusting in the king. How do such people function in this world? In Matthew 6, you recall, um, Jesus' focus was on our relationship with God. Our, our religious activities that are, that are seen by others are nonetheless are to, to be Godward, not for others, but, but for God. Here in Matthew 7, the king's focus is on our relationships with other people. Christians are not to be the people in their community 
who are self-righteous and fault-finding and condemning, especially not when their own sin, known or unknown by others, has not been dealt with. That's to play the hypocrite. Remember, the, the hypocrite is, is the one who, who pretends to be holy by coming up with his own definitions of holiness and then measuring other people against that. And, and again, David comes to mind in the instance of him being confronted by Nathan. Or, or perhaps we could go to, um, in Luke 18, you have the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that one? The Pharisee praying, Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not like this dirtbag over here. Thank you for not making me like him, right? And Luke tells us that Jesus used that parable to expose the Pharisees as hypocritical judges. They were people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So, that, so that's the judging that Jesus speaks of here in Matthew 7. This kind of hypocritical, and I suppose you could say hypercritical judging of others is, is rampant, isn't it? Isn't it? And it isn't just that you can see it out in the wide world, in the culture. Everybody's a critic. It's that if you're honest with yourself, you have to realize, my goodness, I, I've got a bit of that going on with me. So Jesus warns us, the, you who are chronic critics of others, beware, beware. So do you see how Jesus is not forbidding any kind of judging? Um, but but it, it's, it's hypocritical and, and hypercritical judgment that, that disregards its own sin. I, I mentioned in last week's um, Pastor Graham, did any of you read that? A couple of you. Um, in, in Romans 13, we're reminded that civil magistrates, government officials are absolutely appointed by God to judge. We, we need them to do so. That's, that's their role. Uh, later in Matthew's gospel, when we get to Matthew 18, we'll see that church leaders and even church members, members of the body of Christ, are compelled to judge with caution and, and compassion uh, when there is sin in the camp. And that is a biblical imperative for God's people. And that means that you, Christian, at times will be compelled to discern, to judge right and wrong in someone else's life and, and, and speak up with love and humility. To judge simply means to examine the behavior of others and come to a conclusion. It's neutral. It's the, the doing of it that's not neutral. It, it, it's the heart behind it that is sometimes not neutral. Um, listen to First Thessalonians 5. It, it says, admonish the unruly. That's a judgment, isn't it? Titus 3.10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. That, again, that's a judgment. Examine, discern whether a person is, is, is wrongly divisive in the fellowship. Warn them away from that. They're to repent of that contentious spirit. 
or they can't be a part of the fellowship. It's destructive. Leviticus 19.17 says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor and so, and so not bear sin because of him. How interesting. At times, withholding a judgment would be the equivalent of hating your neighbor, being culpable for the very thing you failed to warn him or her away from. I remember years ago talking to a, a fellow who, uh, whose, whose adult daughter had gone quite wayward by God's measure. And, uh, and I asked him about just the, the, the rhythm of things in the home spiritually. And he said, well, you know, I've, my wife and I, we've always thought that we should just let children decide for themselves. And so, so we haven't really, don't laugh, it's not funny. Uh, and and so, so we just sort of didn't push truth on them. We just, we, you know, they're going to have to make their own decision. And um, theologically, that's stupid, right? I mean, that, that is foolish. That, that is not what God calls parents to do. And, and the results of that were disastrous, Right? Um, so, so in many areas of life, judgment is not only allowed, but, but in fact is, is required, is required. So, so what is Jesus talking about here when he says, judge not, so that you will not be judged? He, he, he's simply saying that God's people are not to play the hypocrite, a critical, fault-finding, condemning spirit has no place among kingdom people. Are you hearing this? Notice with me the reasons then that Jesus appeals to in this command against hypocritical and hypercritical judging. Verses one and two, do not judge so that you will not be judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged and with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. I would suggest you do what the Lord put on my heart to do, circle the word you in those verses. This is to do with you. Your judgments are going to be judged. Did you know that? Every analysis and decision you make about someone else is going to be judged. My criticisms of others will be critiqued by God himself. That's sobering, isn't it? And some of us have made so many judgments, so many verdicts about others... We have a library of judgments that we've made about other people. And we need this reminder that one day all of those judgments will be weighed by the infallible judge, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And every judgment we make matters. For with what judgment you judge, says Jesus, you shall be judged. For the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, this is exceptionally vital. A critical spirit is multiplying the severity of your judgment. 
Maybe you've developed an expertise in judging others throughout your whole life. And God says to you, you, you'll be judged by that same standard. Each wrong measure, each hypocritical measure is added to your own judgment for all eternity. You say, well, you mean there's degrees of judgment? Yes. Listen to Romans 2.5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So what do you do under the weight of all of that? You repent and you turn to Christ. Kiss the son lest he be angry, says Psalm 2. Lest his wrath be kindled just a little. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Run to Jesus. What about believers though? What about the king's blessed people? Saved by grace, shown mercy through the work of Christ. Aren't you glad for mercy, friend? My goodness. Well, remember, Jesus is talking to disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount. And and it's to disciples that Jesus says, don't judge hypocritically, lest you be judged. Uh, The Christian faces judgment in this world and also in the world to come. Think of what what Nathan the prophet said to to David. God loves you. The sin is forgiven. David, this is going to be a train wreck for you in this life. And it was. And it was. In this life, how many of you know criticism tends to boomerang right back to us? Anybody want to say amen to that? Well, it's enough to make you just want to not say stuff, isn't it? The parents we once criticized so coldly, so self-righteously. How how does God help you out with that? He gives you kids. (laughs) That's all it takes. Just look at that. Look at those those people. That, That would never happen in my family. Oh, really? Really? David's sin boomeranged on him big time, didn't it? What was done in secret, says the Lord, what was judged in public. What about judgment for eternity, though? How many of you are glad today that your sin in its entirety has already been condemned in Christ? The punishment that all of your hypocritical judging deserves has been put upon Christ at Calvary. Praise God that seeking refuge in Christ, you'll not be punished for sin, not ever. You say, well, I really deserve it. I know, me too, big time. But I know Jesus, see. I've taken refuge in Christ. Think then with me about what brought Jesus to Calvary. Your chronic criticism of others 
put the lash to his back. My self-righteous measuring of others pushed that crown into his brow. Are you hearing this? Your eagle-eyed finding fault in others nailed your king to that cross. Mine too. He took our judgment, our hell, so that we'll never be punished for all of that. But please hear this. Do you realize that you and I, Christian, will be judged one day for reward? For reward? All of God's people will be judged for reward. Those of us who are chronic critics, beware of this. Christians, we do face a judgment for our works. Not for condemnation. That's, that's all taken care of at Calvary. Praise God. Well, listen to 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Our king is generous. Our king is merciful. Our king is gracious. And he he promises to reward those who faithfully serve him, faithfulness measured by him. He, He can't reward our critical spirit toward others. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Matthew 7 says this. He says, Our Lord means to put a holy fear in us so we will put away our critical hearts. I mean, here's a passage that gets your attention. If you're a thinking person at all, whose conscience is still working, it makes you sit up straight. And think about some of the thoughts we've got bouncing around in our heads as we measure others against ourselves. And then he says, the tone of our life is going to become the tone of our judgment. There is nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit and nothing more unchristlike than the false righteousness that is always looking for something wrong in someone else. You think, well, how do, how do we navigate this then? We're, we're, we're meant to judge in the right way. We're warned against judging in the wrong way. How, how do we navigate any of this stuff? Well, look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So nobody wants a blind eye doctor, right? The Pharisees of ancient Israel were blind eye doctors presuming to be spiritual leaders while their own souls were alienated from God. Here's what you guys should do. Oh, are you doing that? Not so much, no. Let them alone, says Jesus. They are blind guides of the blind. If a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. In other words, don't trust a religious hypocrite to tell you how to be right with God. And don't be that religious hypocrite telling somebody else how to be right with God. 
Would you mind if this were practical for just a minute? Parents, listen. How will you instruct your children in waiting on the Lord, trusting in his means of provision, trusting in his way of of, of directing life goals and priorities and relationships if you don't do so yourself? Church, how, how can we take a stand for immorality in our community, which is all over the place, by the way, when so many of God's people are addicted to pornography or cheating on their taxes or using their marriages primarily to serve themselves instead of learning to die to self. There's always the danger of these things being personal and practical, right? So, says our king, don't, don't play the hypocrite, hypocrite presuming to tell someone else how to be right with God. Verse 5, first take the log out of your own eye. And so Nathan says to David, you still with me? Nathan says to David, you're the man. You're all hot and bothered about a rich guy taking his poor neighbor's one lamb. And yet you took Uriah's wife. (laughs) And you used her, and then you killed him, and you're play-acting now as God's anointed king, your opposer, acting like you're right with God. And Nathan, David says what? This is the part where you can talk. Anybody? I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against Yahweh. I wonder if there is any sense of that among us right now. Some of us needing to say, you know what? In light of the truth of God, Lord, I have sinned against you. I don't have a story about it. I don't have an excuse. I'm not going to blame my parents and my grandparents. I'm not going to blame the community. I've sinned against God. David is brought to a place of repentance. And David is so... Uh, moved by God's grace and his repentance that his confession of adultery and murder and deceit was set to song for the nation, wasn't it? We know it as Psalm 51. Listen to part of Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. God, God, I am the man, but I sure don't want to be anymore. Will you forgive me? Those of you who are yet apart from Christ and and, and you've heard the word of God that every thought and deed of yours is to be judged? Will you not say as David did, I've sinned against God? Will you not seek shelter in his remedy for your sin as you turn from it, as you repent from it? Turn to Christ who came into this world to live the righteous life you have not lived. And then go to that cross and take upon himself 
the, the wrath from God that all of your hypocritical criticism of other people deserves. And then David says, you still listening? And then David says, um, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Don't miss that last part. When I'm right with God, when my conscience affirms that, that, that the Lord has graciously forgiven my sin, I've turned from it. Well, well, now I can see much more clearly to help someone else with a pure heart, with a tender heart, with a heart that's concerned with the glory of God. In other words, this, the, the, the twig in that brother's eye is still a problem. Husbands, listen. You who um, nitpick your wives, um, pointing out this weakness and that fault and the other shortcoming, have, have, you, have you considered the beam in your own eye? Does your, does your conscience speak to you about this? Is, is your help to her with the, with the twig that's there ministered with the tenderness and patience with which Christ ministers to you? Ephesians 5, as you know, says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Men, does, does the judgment <laughs> you have coming one day temper your criticism of her? You're married to one of his daughters, you know. Well, it's unfortunate that these things aren't practical, isn't it? Wives, listen, Proverbs 27, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He, this, is, this is the word of God. It's this, this, is not, this is not funny. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. You see, the, what, what is God saying to his people? The Christian home is to be a venue where the critical, contentious, uh, hypercritical spirit is being put to death. Mercy triumphs judgment in that home. And self-examination precedes any measure of others. Ephesians 6, 4, you parents too must stop exasperating your children but continue to bring them up with the sort of education and counsel the Lord approves. 
How many logs, I wonder, must be removed through repentance this day? How, how, how much steady dripping <laughs> contention must be brought to an end today, t- t- turned away from among God's people? And you say, well, he's, he, he, this is normally where he says, not you, but the second service. Let's just, let's just leave this one with us. God's remedy for a critical condemning spirit is self-examination, humility, and repentance. Some of our biblical counselors will often recommend, actually almost always recommend uh, to those who are having relationship challenges um, to focus on their own hearts first. And um, people sometimes get really mad about that because everybody knows that when you're going to a counselor, you go to that counselor to fix them, right? (laughs) You need that counselor to fix them because they're all messed up. I pray you see this morning in Scripture that that counsel is biblical. That counsel that says, hey, suspect yourself first. Okay? God's remedy for a critical condemning spirit is self-examination, humility, and repentance. Now, um, we're going in a direction now, aren't we? Aren't we still left with the fact that our brother has a twig in his eye? You just leave it there? Parents, you're just, you're just never going to lovingly correct a child because you messed up too? That doesn't seem to be what the Scripture calls us to, does it? God's remedy is not that we would never again make a, a value judgment about another person. This is to do with the heart orientation in doing so. So the world that says to you, don't judge me. Who, who are you Christians to judge us? Who do, you, who do you people think you are judging? That's not God's word to you at all this morning. Please, please don't hear that. It, it's just that you get your beam out first, right? You, you get the log out of your own eye. By God's grace, you repent of that. You turn from that. I hope you make a value judgment on May 16th when you go to the polls and you vote out the incumbent library board members who think it's a great idea to provide sexually explicit materials to our young people. You say, Pastor, you're being political. That is not a partisan statement. That's a moral statement. It is appropriate for the people of God to lovingly and gently but clearly say, that ain't right. We're not doing that. That does not glorify God. But, But let's examine ourselves first, shall we? 1 Peter 4 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. That's where it starts. And then what? Well, Matthew 7, 5, Then you will see clearly to take the speck 
out of your brother's eye. Listen to this echo of of Jesus' principle in, in Galatians 6. Paul says this. He says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Do you see how that's a proper judgment being made? Church, your your elders at times are called upon to make judgments with humility and discretion. And so too are you as individual church members. This is God's means of, of, of maintaining purity in his body, his church. Matthew 18 says this, now, now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. So, so there would be no cause to call the church and ask for an elder and say, hey, I need you to go talk to Fred. This is Barney, by the way. And everybody in bedrock knows what he's up to. You guys need to talk to him. Have you talked to him? No. Well, well Goodbye. You go talk to him first in a spirit of love and humility. And Lord willing, it'll just stay right there. Nobody else even needs to know that that happened. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. In other words, now it affects fellowship among the people of God. The sinful, critical spirit gossips and slanders openly. The gentle spirit is, is discreet and direct. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The sinful, nitpicking spirit looks for error, delights to find it in someone else. The restorative spirit looks for what is right and is really patient and forbearing when confronting what is wrong. The the, the heart that finds pleasure in, in pointing out sin in others is itself in sin. The heart concerned for God's glory and God's best for his image bearers pleases him. Here's the thing. Kingdom people then are to be cautious and forbearing and helpful in correcting others. Always conscious of their own faults. Say, so where, where do you get that? From Matthew 7. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So before we criticize, we, we do well to ask ourselves, don't we, is this true? Is, is this helpful? Is this really necessary? Does this have anything to do with what is best for the person I'm planning to speak to? Does it have anything to do with God's glory? Is that really the issue? 
Can I say this with humility and, and, and an awareness of my own imperfections and shortcomings? The Christian life then is always a life of balance, isn't it? And is, doesn't it seem to you that the sin nature is such that we, that we tend to go to one extreme or the other? Have you noticed that? I almost said, have you noticed that in other people? But I think that's against what we're, we're focusing on, isn't it? Notice how Jesus, in, 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 let's wrap up with this. Jesus provides the balance, doesn't he, in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Again, those are judgment statements, aren't they? Of course, as Christians, we're to share the truth of God. Of, of, of course, the king's people are meant to be out in the community making much of Jesus with words and as, as his grace allows with our lives. We don't, we don't want to quench that. We're to warn others away from error. We're, we're to testify to the truth. This is all part of, of being ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in verse 6, Jesus, our king, is saying, you need to be discriminating in how you do this, discerning in how you do this. The filthy wild dogs roaming the dusty streets of, of, of Galilee were, were always ready to attack and, and dangerous. And, and how many of you know that we live in a world in which some people are so angry and hostile to the gospel, so close-minded, only wanting to argue, only wanting an opportunity to ridicule, to mock Christ and his word, um, that's probably not the person that you're going to just sit down and say, hey, can we have a talk about the Bible? Do they need the Lord? Absolutely. But in that moment, that's probably not the time. Wait for the next one. Or, or by God's grace, he'll allow someone else to reach them. Don't, don't give them the opportunity um, to, to, to mock the Lord. Um, that would be unthinkable. How unthinkable? It'd be like giving a beautiful, expensive pearl necklace to a bunch of pigs and then thinking that they would actually appreciate that. Being surprised that it's, it's trampled and muddied. But two quick examples, and then we'll close. Are you still listening? Um, when, when Jesus was questioned by Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, a Gentile, knows nothing of the Bible, uh, Pilate questions Jesus and says, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered Pilate, didn't he? He said, you, you yourself say it. We can have this conversation. Pilate was asking Jesus some questions. When Jesus was questioned by King Herod, Luke tells us, Herod who knew the Old Testament scriptures, Herod who should have recognized the signs that the Lord's anointed had come, the Messiah had come. Herod, who already has built a track record of just wanting to ridicule the people of God, hypocrite that he was, Jesus said nothing to Herod. The scripture says he answered him nothing. Why? Because Herod's heart was so hard, he wasn't going to listen to the truth anyway. Second example that we'll see later 
in Matthew's gospel. Remember, as Jesus is, is preaching this Sermon on the Mount, he's about to send his followers out two by two with the gospel of the kingdom. And he says this to them. He says, And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you leave that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And you think, well, boy, this, this, this is difficult truth. I mean, this would require that I be prayerful all the time as I'm interacting with other people. This would require then that I don't just make quick value judgments based on my feelings, but I'm actually communing with God all the time so that I'm being led by the Spirit of God in these relationships that I have with other people. And I'll just leave it at that. The king's people need discernment in how and when they speak truth to others. And here's the thing, friends. The Lord provides it, doesn't he? The Lord will lead us as we seek him. In fact, he's about to say to us, ask and it will be given you. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the, the way that you use your word to just put the, put the microscope to our own hearts. Lord, you, you reveal to us when we're, um, when we're right with you. You reveal to us when we're not. And Lord, I thank you that you have shown us that it's the, it's the critical spirit, the, the, the hypercritical, hypocritical spirit that you warn us against that there will be times when you call us to make a judgment according to your truth and you'd have us do so with humility and patience and forbearance, aware of our own faults. So Lord, we ask that you'd help us with this and in doing so, we pray that we would represent you well in a world that knows all about judge not. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your